Hello and welcome to Man on the Clapham Omnibus Sport Review. Um, for the first time ever I managed to um, do a recording and instead of pressing pause I press stop. So this is now basically part two of the podcast I'm doing about uh, Jose Mourinho and Hunter S. Thompson. So I'm really just going to basically pick up where I left off. So what you have with the kind of element of post-closes, let's say from a Western European standpoint, is is that you can ignore the outside of this kind of bubble. So you have the, your hotel, you have all the events surrounding the fight, and this kind of monumental battle between Ali and George Foreman. But you, you can ignore the the little bits around the edge, the idea that this stadium where the fight is being hosted has been used to uh, you know for executions for your know, political distance be, dis- dissidents being held you know that Zaire is poor that Moboto is a you know psychotic strongman and for Americans i suppose the question the elephant in the room is why did this celebration of African-American excellence not take part in the South? You know, Ali, Foreman, James Brown, they were all Southern-born. You, you have the Civil Rights Act that had been basically signed pretty much ten years previously. You, know, you had the end of segregation, and yet here there was no willingness. There was They were unwilling and unable... I suppose, in the short term, to even want to host this fight. Or you know, the element that there was no you know, major successful African-American businesses in the South that would have the same kind of economic pull that Maboto had. You know, James Brown has you know, a lot of you know, radio business and huge commercial success but even then that is sort of cut down the idea that he then has to sell some of his radio stations to just limit his kind of power and the fact that you know he doesn't live in the south he lives in LA you know the and I suppose when you take this back to the sort of decline of Hunter S. Thompson I think the point is is that what did the readers want from you know, Hunter S. Thompson's Rumble in the Jungle piece. And to my mind, it's a form of... It's a travelogue. It's a fear and loathing in Kinshasa. And there's going to be celebrity cameos. There's going to be Ali. There's going to be Foreman. There's going to be this fight. There's going to be the heat. And all of these colours and different experiences. And then the music. And all of these brilliant writers all crammed into the bar. It's not really the same meaning as, you know... Arguing against calling you know Hubert Humphrey a gutless ward healer, you know criticizing Nixon, you know basically saying that you know freak power was needed in Aspen, Colorado. There is not that level of level of frustration or this need to change things. You know, the audience doesn't really want to. I suppose if you were going to do a Gonzo piece, you'd say that really this this should have happened in. New Orleans, or Houston, or Atlanta, or even Louisville itself. 
it should have been a celebration of African-American cultural achievement in the United States. But no one wanted that. You know, even you know, even if you take the the sort of long historical point of you know the failure of reconstruction after the Civil War, the inability to stop the you know, creation of the Jim Crow state, and even on a sort of more more recent basis, that you know the the failure of you know civil rights to really make a huge cultural change. It's not that you know the fact that there's not enough power. You know, really basically situated for you know, black businesses in the South, and that the local power structure isn't particularly interested in hosting this fight. Why didn't they want to hold this kind of epochal event? And it is epochal in the sense that it's one of the greatest fights. It's one of the most talked about events, most written about. People have written books, there's been movies, Oscar winning documentaries. There is fame. Everyone knows what Rumble in the Jungle is. And yet, on the same flip side of it, did it change anything? Well, Ali continued to have great fights. He ends up with the, you know, the trilogy of fights with Joe Frazier, you have the thriller in Manila. And at the same time, you know, as I've said earlier, was it the dawn of sports washing? You might be able to say that maybe the thriller in Manila and, you know, Fernando you know, Marcos, but it that's just two fights that are huge fights that you know, have a worldwide interest and that there was money, you know, involved. But it didn't lead to the USSR starting sports washing. Their idea of sports washing was winning as many gold medals as humanly possible at the Olympics. You know, it the really the, you know, for the locals, you know, was there many benefits? Not really. You know, did it help Pan-Africanism? Well, not particularly in the sense that it was sort of a mismatch. It was, you know, part a celebration of you know, black culture, but it was also, you know, Africa as the theatrical backdrop to an American fight that was really then became a world heavyweight title fight that had worldwide interest. And that really where... Africa's role was to be a more interesting backdrop than Madison Square Garden or one of the casinos in the Las Vegas Strip. So the the rumble in the jungle becomes really, I think, the first major failing of sort of gonzo journalism. The the, the concept that you have the the writer is participatory and is the sort of principal protagonist. And is that you know, and you see things from from their eyes. It's not just someone you know, sitting in a press box telling you who scored the goal when. It's telling you what the atmosphere is like in the press box, how you you know what the how you get to the stadium, who's doing what where, and then you know, really the the game or whatever event you are covering it is really more of a a backdrop than the principal scenery. I suppose a gonzo, you know, sort of journalism, if you were basically writing about, you know, doing a review of a Romeo and Juliet play in which you were starring as a sort of walk-on kind of, you know, the narrator, 
and actually what you were telling is that all of the problems that the cast were having, that maybe Mercutio wasn't getting on with Romeo, and that Juliet actually, you know, was in a relationship with the director, is that kind of element, and then how that would therefore impact on the performance. In other words, whereby a standard review would just say, well, it was a poor performance, the Gonzo one would say, well, actually, the reason why Juliet wasn't, because she'd had a massive fight with the director ten minutes before, and, you know, Mercutio and... Romeo weren't making eye contact. So, with Gonzo Journalism, it was a creation of Hunter S. Thompson. I think that the, the, probably the first article that he ever did that you would say would be Gonzo was the Kentucky Derby is decadent and depraved. Him and Ralph Steadman, this English um, artist, go there, they get smashed and really, while they're ostensibly covering the Kentucky Derby, actually they're covering all of the elements of the sort of southern upper class in sort of Kentucky and how they treat the the Derby. As it's a sense of these people just sort of in their whites getting absolutely hammered on mint juleps. And just, it's a place where people want to be seen. You know, you have the governor's box, where it's the governor. You have Harlan Sanders, the you know, KFC um, you know, empresario. And what happens is, is that originally Hunter S. Thompson is a gifted, intelligent, perceptive writer. And really, you know, Gonzo was developed almost as a, a structure that brought out his best works. But paradox paradoxically, it sowed the seeds of his decline as the 70s bleed into the 80s. Now, I think with writers, you, you have a period of time where you're at your peak, where you understand the world. You know, it is your generation, and that really, eventually, that generation fades. So, you know, Hunter S. Thompson was a product of the 1950s and early 60s, and he came of age during the 60s. And so the, the sort of period between the late 60s and the early 70s is when he is absolutely at his zenith. You know, you have Nixon, you have McGovern, you have Vietnam, you have so much culturally going on in terms of music, in terms of writing, and gonzo journalism comes out at exactly the right perfect moment. But once you get into the 80s, the culture has moved on. And, you know, because of his drinking, because of his recklessness, because of his drug use, you know, he's burned out, and he's increasingly out of touch. And in the end, he's less sort of churning out very derivative gonzo works. It's all of the same. It's no different from ten years previously. But it's increasingly stylized. And it's dealing with events that aren't particularly that in, you know, major. So instead of elections, instead of him you know, trying to change you know, local politics, you know, one of his books is about a marathon in Hawaii. You know, it, it's fine, it's not a terrible piece of work, but it, it's not particularly significant. You know, I've said his latter works are not terrible, but nor are they important. They're still popular, but it's entertainment and shock value. You know, it's the outlaw journalist doing and saying what you wish you could. If you were a journalist, you'd just rock up, you know, to a, a press conference with a four-pack, wearing a pair of shorts and a Hawaiian shirt where everybody else is sitting there diligently with, you know, pencil and paper and, you know, a tape recorder wearing a suit and tie. And in a way, what you have is, is that Gonzo becomes a subterfuge. It's 450 words of manic filler, 
to spin out the 50 excellent words or the two or three great original thoughts because those 50 words don't make an article but if you write 450 words of how you got to the press conference that covers it you've made your word count and you push it in and then you head to the bar you know the, the sense is the audience changed their perspective of hunter s thompson and then their expectations for what was next what they wanted from the writer and the man himself. He then ends up having to spend the rest of his life living up to the legend. He's entombed in that myth. You know, the element of fame is destructive. You can ask the question of whether that was inevitable, but the point is is that when you're a journalist and you just slid under the radar, he was just sitting at the back. But it's completely different when you're at the press conference and there was a classic example, he was at a presidential press conference and more people were asking for his autograph and for his attention than they were the president. And so in the end, Gonzo becomes a brand. You know, he ends up, you know, his fortified compound, Owl Farm in Woody Creek, Colorado, becomes the cathedral of the myth. So in other words, he doesn't go anywhere. You know, he doesn't follow it in the way a normal journalist would by going to the event. He's sitting there, you know, covering a presidential election from his home, watching on TV. And so to keep the brand relevant, what you have is all of these celebrities basically make the pilgrimage to Owl Farm. And then they, you know, act in, you know, they get drunk or they do something ridiculous. And that then becomes part of his next article. Because, oh yeah, me and Keith were getting drunk and then started, you know, firing shotguns into the air at three o'clock in the morning. Just for, you know, shits and giggles. So when you take that kind of a situation, what you then have is, well, has the same thing happened to Jose? You know, is it a situation where his original genius and his newness, which led to you know, the trophies and the success at Porto, Chelsea, and Inter Milan, and the point was is that the genius allowed him at the end point to declare, I am the special one. It was only after you won the Champions League with Porto. It may be your introductory press conference to Chelsea, but there is some basis on why he was and said and created this atmosphere and this aura around himself. The bra- I've said the re- Bragadasho is the reward. It was not the, the beginning point. He didn't walk in there, you know, basically proclaiming to be God at Porto, he's earned that right. You know, it's not arrogance if you know, it's only arrogance if you're wrong. And that's the point when he was originally at you know, his first two or three major jobs, Porto, Chelsea and Inter Milan, he was culturally at his peak with society and as a whole with the players. You know, there was an element that he brought a, a huge newness to football, but it was still the under, you know, the undercurrent. The foundations was really based on an old school element. You know, loyalty, the culture of the school of hard knocks, youth systems where it was sink or swim, where it wasn't particularly caring. You know, if you didn't make it, you didn't make it. If you weren't tough enough, if you couldn't take the banter, you weren't going to make it in football. You know, you have. You know, that's the way how he sort of treats Victor Baia, who at Porto was a very experienced goalkeeper. He'd been at Barcelona previously, sort of back end of his career. And Mourinho can be incredibly harsh 
on him, dropping him at one point due to they're having an argument because he has to win the argument. And yet, you would now, if you tried to do that in the modern game, you wouldn't last five minutes. You know, the, the idea of you know, Lampard, when he was originally started his career at West Ham, got huge amounts of abuse from his own supporters who thought just because you know the manager, Harry Rennap, was his godfather and his dad, Frank Lampard Sr., was the assistant manager, that he was getting you know, nepotistic you know, treatment, that he was getting you know, into the team based on name, not on talent. You had John Terry, who went out on loan to Nottingham Forest, and Chelsea effectively said... We don't think we need you. We 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 want to sell you, and he says no and stays and then breaks into the team. You know, in some ways, what you have is that I've said it's the the dying days of the alpha male domination of football. Now, some people would argue now that football is still dominated by alpha males, and to an extent, they're correct. But I imagine it almost like the alpha male domination football was like the Great Wall of China. It was this huge long wall that was just impenetrable. You might have the occasional, you know, female century, but for the most part, it was blokes only. You know, if you were a woman, you would have to be, you know, one of the lads. You'd have to be just as good, if not better, than the uh, you know, league average male to just even be loud anywhere into the like the clubhouse. And yet the funniest thing is is that Jose's success, because he is very much an alpha male, anyone who walks into a press conference says, I am the special one, you know, is cocksure, let's be completely honest about it. But ironically, his own sex appeal was part of the breaking of the great male hegemony wall. The point is is that it's now broken in several places. You know, it is not a wall. You, you've lost Richard Keyes, you've lost... Andy Gray. You have far more women. When women are criticised on Twitter and they are by a sexist hate mob, there is action. People want this to stop. Because And why I'm talking about sort of Jose's sex appeal is that there had never been a manager who was previously, who'd been urbane, stylish and attractive and successful before. Not, not in English football. You think of all the successful managers... Was Kenny Dalglish a? Did he have? Was he? Did he have sex appeal? I wouldn't think so. Matt Busby, uh, Don Revy, none of them have sex appeal. The point is, is that you know Jose's coat is in the Chelsea Hall of Fame. That famous coat that he first started wearing, you know, he was very stylish, and there were people that were attracted to him who weren't football fans, who knew who he was just from you know sort of cultural osmosis. When you take his success, you know, at, let's say Inter, the point is is that winning the Champions League at Inter was a fantastic achievement. But had that been all he would have done, that would have made him a relatively successful manager. You know, that's great. You know, many managers have periods of time where they win lots. You know, Cluffy won a couple of European Cups. But I think the difference was is that he didn't just win the Europa, the champ, sorry, the the Champions League. He won the league. He won the Coppa Italia. That's the Coppa Italia at that time. It was a you know two legged tie, two legged final, two legged semi final. All of those games, 
And really, the, the only closest example you can have would be Ferguson at United winning the, the 1999 treble. But that had been really the culmination of years of dominance. You know, and you can set it against the backdrop of the rise of the English Premier League. You know, even in that season, he still didn't win the League Cup, lost to Spurs in the quarterfinals. And the point is, is that for Inter winning that treble, to end you know, effectively undefeated, and it wasn't Inter that did it. You know, sorry, it wasn't AC Milan that did it. It wasn't Juventus. And it wasn't in a period when you know, Italian football was at its zenith. It wasn't the 90s or the you know, early 90s, late 80s or late 90s. It was when Italian football was going through a period of regression. You'd have the problems with you know, Calcio Poli. You'd have Juventus relegated. It was a dark period. And yet somehow, by just sheer impact and testament to his... I don't want to say aura, but to his... To his achievement there. That he took a club that had traditionally been... Overpriced and underperforming. That it was... You know, Every sort of two or three years, you'd have an Inter Milan team where they spent a load of money and they had a famous coach, and this was going to be the year that they were going to win, you know, Serie A. And then it would never happen. You know, when they got Ronaldo, he got injured and wasn't quite the same player he was at Barcelona, ends up going to Real Madrid and, and rebuilding his career and winning the 2002 World Cup. You know, you had all of these kind of close run things but in the intervening time period you'd had Lazio and Sergio Cragnotti spending a load of money and Sven takes them to the title you'd then have Fabio Capello at Roma and they spent £32 million on Batistuta, they'd won the title, you'd had Juve still winning titles you'd had AC Milan still winning titles and European Cups under Berlusconi and yet the only outfit, no matter how much money they spent no matter how much star power they threw at it, they would never win and yet then once Mourinho turns up and just, you know, it's a good squad, but it's not, it has a few superstars, but he just by sheer force of will got them not only to win Serie A, now you could say, you know, AC Milan were on the downslope, Juventus had been relegated, but they had still not won it for an extended period of time. He gets there and he wins it, wins it again, then wins the cup, then wins the Champions League. You, know, you have this, you know, Epic semi-final with Barcelona, where they're you know down to ten men. You know they're you know, this is a great Barca team encamped on in the edge of their box, and you think if they concede, if they 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 could potentially get hammered, but they hold out in you know a heroic defensive rear guard that takes them to the final. And so you have with Mourinho. You know, Mourinho Mark 1 it's that combination of aura arrogance, tactical acumen, intensity you know there's an element of sporting principles involved you know when he originally gets his first big break in Portuguese football was at Benfica and the president basically says this is how much transfer money you're going to have when he takes the job upon taking the job that transfer figure is revealed to be complete nonsense and he has got 
nowhere near as much money and nowhere near as much power to do what he wants to do. So he just walks out. And there's no guarantee at that moment that he would ever get another big job. And yet he didn't matter to him. He ends up going to Porto, one of their biggest rivals, and then having all of that success. And yet there's the confidence that he has when you know one of his better players at Porto is sold to Spurs, held a Postiga. He basically says he's not going to do very well in English football. Imagine if Helder Pussy had had a great season. He'd have looked ridiculous. He'd have looked small-minded and petty, but he was absolutely 100% right. He didn't suit English football at all. And in some ways, these three clubs in Inter Milan, Chelsea and Porto, you could argue they were fighting against the huge clubs. Benfica, I would argue, the biggest club in in Portuguese football history. You know, with Inter Milan, you're fighting against AC, you're fighting against Juventus, Chelsea, you've got you know Liverpool, Manchester United, you could even probably have said Arsenal at that time period. You know, Chelsea had only won the league once, and that was in 55. And the thing that is, the thing is, is that you could argue in many ways that he maybe wasn't the most you know, tactically brilliant manager. That you know, it's n- nowhere near as, let's say, ideological as Klopp. Nowhere near as ideological in terms of midfield as Guardiola. What I would say is probably most amazing about it is that he somehow, through his aura and the just being Jose, seemed to be able to feed off all of the negative emotions of those teams that he managed. The sense that Portuguese teams aren't good enough to compete at the highest level. That, you know, maybe they would win a UEFA Cup, or maybe on occasion they would get to a quarter-final of a Champions League and then get beaten by the first decent outfit that they play. And not just beaten, beaten quite easily. The sort of classic example is where you have the home, the, you know, home leg in Portugal, draw nil-nil, and then in the second leg, let's say United battered them 4-0, and it's pretty much, the game's finished by 20 minutes of the second leg. Mm. And yet somehow he was able to get those players into the belief that not only, you know, it's easy enough to, you know, once they've won the UEFA Cup, to say, great, we're in the Champions League, we'll have a bit of a run. But to then, you know, keep that hunger going, to then win another, and also to win the treble. You're not, you're not dropping the Portuguese Cup even for a minute or the league when you can say this is a once in a you know once in a century opportunity to win the big one. You then take Chelsea's unpopularity in English football. You know as they were nouveau riche, you know the lack of major trophy, the fact that you know they were called Chelsea. It was Abramovich. There was just a sense that you know people just English football really didn't approve of that kind of, sort of gauche spending. You know, you had, you know, as I've said, Inter Milan as expensive underachievers. You know, Juventus are the old lady. You know, the biggest football team in Italy that we, who have the most fans spread all across the peninsula. And then you had AC Milan with its recent, you know, with its historical history. And you've then had the the near history. You know, you had Berlusconi who was, you know, prime minister. You know, and the biggest media baron in Italy. And using, you know, sort of 
his television network to help boost AC Milan. And you had all of these famous players. You, you had Maldini, Costa Curta, Shevchenko. And in a way, for a period of time when they were winning Champions Leagues, they really were Italy's team. You know, and there were the, you know, the famous black and white stripes and just all of that cultural importance. And yet somehow, all of that negativity, the always finishing as expensive underachievers, somehow Mourinho was the magic bullet antidote. You know, you couldn't have got through that just purely on Kevin Keegan-esque man management. You, there had to be a tactical underpinning to it, to have won those league titles, to have been able to keep... You know, and they weren't the biggest squad, they weren't necessarily the most brilliant squad, but to get everyone just completely in sync, it is a, an incredible achievement. I mean, yes, you could argue that, yeah, all three would have had success but for him managing them. You, know, you still have Roman's money. You had Calcio Poly. You'd had AC Milan were a fading dynasty. Juventus had been relegated. You know, at that period of time in Portuguese football, they had a great generation of Portuguese talent. You know, they finished you know, Euro 2004 runners-up. They qualified for the World Cup for the first time in donkey's years. But the point is, is that none of them would have had the level of dominance or the totality, the extent of that success. So the key question is, is why then is this Madrid spell Mourinho's rumble in the jungle failure? And I think it's the same thing that happened to Hunter S. Thompson. The audience changed their perspective. The audience didn't want, you know, wasn't as interested in you know, Hunter S. Thompson's analysis as they were interested in what weird stuff is Hunter going to do? You know, is he going to turn up to a, you know, press conference half drunk, you know, with a red Cadillac that he ploughs into a fence post outside and then stumbles in not knowing which day of the week he is? That became the more fascination of how far can gonzo journalism go? What What is this character going to do? Rather than, actually, what this is, is, you know, Three thousand, three and a half thousand words of sound political insight, you know, with five hundred words of liberal kind of, you know, I won't say gaiety, but you know, five hundred words of Gonzoisms, you know, just elements, but not that the whole nut. And that's the point. The wider football audience changed their perspective on Mourinho. They weren't looking there, and they they weren't looking for the genius of his style but for the narrative brand journey. You know, what do you mean by brand journey? What that really is, is the story that you are trying to tell. You know, if you're trying to basically, if you're doing like an advert, and if your adverts are kind of like Hovis adverts, very old-timey, trying to play up on the kind of old-school British kind of history elements. Or And so really, in the end, what people were looking for was that. Like, will he win? You know, can he win with Real Madrid? You know, if he wins the UEFA Champions League for the third different team, would that make him the greatest of all time? It's Pep versus Jose. You know, light versus dark, attack versus defence. And so, and this is a Real Madrid team that is really desperate for stability and success. 
They've had lots of different managers, they've had lots of different players, and it's all a bit of a mess. You know, Barcelona are transcendent. They have all of this they're amazing Spanish talent. They have Hope, they have Lionel Messi, and they have Tiki Taka. And it just feels like they could be dominant for five, ten years. They could be the Spanish equivalent of Liverpool in the 70s and 80s. That is the fear. But they just want the success. They want what the Jose brand offers on, you know, it does exactly what it says on the tin. If we get Jose, that means we will get trophies and we will get trophies remarkably quickly. It's not he'll do something amazing. It's win, win or die. We don't care how you do it. We don't care what sort of players you use. Here's a load of money. Here's some great players. Make it happen. And the thing is, the players have changed. And the thing is, with Madrid, it's a very political football club. It's very demanding. But at this point, this wasn't a, we want to win with Galacticos, or we want to win playing beautiful football. We just need to be competing with Barcelona yesterday. And the player-manager balance, you know, had changed because, you know, really society moves on. And at that point, it wasn't quite the same. You have a bit more player power. You don't necessarily have young players that are as battle-hardened as, let's say, Terry and Lampard or even Petr Cech to a lesser extent. You know, Madrid wanted La Decima. They wanted the 10th European Cup. They've been stuck on nine for, for years. And they spent enough money to feel that they deserved or that they should have had La Decima by now. So really what it comes down to is this is, was Mourinho's time at Madrid a failure? In the narrative greatest of all time sense, yeah, he didn't win La Decima. It comes to, you know, Carlo Ancelotti and then... Zidane, they're the ones that win all of the Champions League. You can argue maybe that they'd use some of the base that Jose had left, or but I'm not you know a hundred and ten percent sure. But those Madrid teams were usually relatively defensively sound, and they had enough quality up front with Ronaldo, Bale. But in terms of actually what his achievement was, there was a record, you know points total against a formidable brilliant Barca team. They were unlucky in the Champions League round. They lost one of them on a penalty shootout. And this is where the change had happened. What you'd had previously is Mourinho had genius, which led to success on the pitch, which led to trophies, and then you've got the braggadocio at the end of it. What people now wanted was the brand. Jose is a winner. This is our narrative. We have picked Jose. Jose will win and will win very quickly. And then this is the success which is guaranteed. And every single team since then has treated him in that manner. You know, every single club has all they have wanted, the clubs he's gone to, have been seeking the Mourinho narrative brand. And the perception that has really become entrenched has become concrete is that you will get a short term success that's what I've said this before everyone just comes up to you as a Spurs fan and says oh well you have Jose you will win something but it will go tits up eventually 
Yeah, that is the, the classic phrase. I mean, I think even the term tits up is the one that gets used more often than not by English football fans when talking to their Spurs friend about Jose. It will go horribly wrong. You know, it will be, and there'll be some short-term success, but it will inevitably fold into rancor and open warfare with the playing staff and all the board. You know, this is the whole point, is that with Chelsea, when he rejoins them, I am the humble one. And the idea is I'm going to rebuild Chelsea back to back to the dominance you know, that we had in the first spell. And that we're going to effectively win the Champions League. To culminate the journey of what he had originally started. Almost as if what would have happened had, Jose, had Abramovich not sacked Jose and they'd gone to the Champions League final against Manchester United. Would they have won it had Jose been in the dugout? Instead of Avram Grant. In Manchester United. Oh, it was battle pep. You know, Man City have pep. They spent all of this money. They have all of this infrastructure. Jose will bring United back to their. sort of Fergusonian rightful place. At the apex of English football. And in Europe. And he will do it. Ridiculously quickly. You know, with Tottenham. You know, build the brand. Globally. You know, having Jose will help us you know, sell Tottenham Hotspur Football Club to the world. You know, it, you know, you've got the Amazon documentary. He'll be perfect for that. You know, he'll be the dominant figure in that documentary. You know, saying, Deli Ali, are you your brother? You know, I need Deli, not your brother. You know, I will make Harry Kane explode. It's, you know, we will keep Harry Kane. We will keep Son et al by doing what Pochettino couldn't do and was win the big one and get a trophy. And I suppose that the point is is that because he's been such a huge part of English football and global football for so long, I mean, we're talking about really when he first came to the sort of public knowledge, I suppose it would be about 2003 when he wins... When he wins the UEFA Cup against Martin O'Neill's Celtic. So that's 2003. That's near, That's basically 18 years ago. Which is when we first get the sense that there is this you know, young, handsome, completely different manager. Someone who didn't have a playing career. Someone who had a, a university degree. And who then built himself up from the bottom upwards. That didn't happen in the early 2000s. It didn't happen in Portugal. Those people then, didn't. if they did become managers, they became low-level managers. Like the sort of Spanish teams that are, you know, and they're, they're always, you know, sort of like, you know, Ibar. You know, it's those Albacete, those sort of teams where small stadiums, very local, you know, a budget 1% the size of Barcelona and Real. What those managers aren't is they don't, go and win the Europe yeah, the Europa League. They don't then win the Champions League. They don't then go to Chelsea, Inter, Real, Manchester United and Spurs. They don't go to all of these massive clubs. It just never happened. And that was what was so new, that he was urbane, that he was intelligent, that he spoke multiple languages. You know, we were a few years away from having, you know, Ron Atkinson's. You know, you had Peter Reid. You just didn't have football managers that looked and spoke like Jose. And did Jose-like things. And the point is because there's been so much controversy. You know, you have the Eva situation. You have, you know, the battles with Barcelona. You had, you know, poking Tito Villanova in the eye. There's been so much controversy. You know, when he was celebrating, you know, when their 
first played Chelsea first played the League Cup final against Chelsea against Liverpool and it was in Cardiff. But Wembley hadn't even been finished by then. That's how long ago it was. And Jose ran, you know, in front of the Liverpool fans, you know, putting his finger to his lips. You've had all of these things. You've had the fallout at Chelsea the first time, the second time. We stop listening. Whatever he says is viewed through a negative prism. Either it's egotism, bitterness, or blinkered hubris. When he said when Spurs played Liverpool and lost 2-1 that the better team had lost. Even though for the vast majority of that match Spurs were outplayed. Were very defensive. A couple of times hit them on the break. Scored a goal. Had a couple of chances. But most people would have argued that the team most likely to win that game was really Liverpool. If you'd replayed that game ten times, Liverpool more often than not would win. Maybe Spurs would have sneaked a couple of draws, maybe a couple of wins, but more often than not, Liverpool would have won that game. Or there's hostility, hostility to Deli Alley, hostility towards Gareth Bale. You know, even the Jose says, I said in my previous podcast about this, they don't see his statements, you know, they just see it as a you know, a coded rallying cry against modern life, against wokeism. Ah, oh, he's criticising Deli Alley. He's saying he's not doing enough. That means he must not be training hard enough. That means he must just be no longer focused on being a football player. He's just a prima donna, that kind of thing. Or you know, if he says something about Gareth Bale, then it means Gareth Bale no longer cares about football. It's that kind of principle. Mm. That's what people think now. And what you then have is is that he's a man I've, I've probably said this before I think he's a man battling his own legacy you know every single defeat weakens his legacy just a little bit every single you know if we lost to Royal Antwerp you there's always a statistic that says Jose had never lost a Europa League game in that manner never lost to a team from Belgium there's always some element the, or Jose had ne- you know, when they, we drew three all with West Ham, a Jose team had never once ever lost. Uh, he drawn a game from being three and with eight minutes to go. I mean, this is a man that went ten years without a home defeat in the league. Ten years across you know three different, four different countries. That is an unimaginably long league record. You know, it's just insane. How would you not have one game where you just hit the crossbar five times and that they got a goal in the last minute? You know, that the Oppo got a goal in the last minute. How could that never have happened? And you know, as much as the aura of pre Madrid Jose has gone away, in many ways we should really be sitting there saying how amazing it was that it lasted so long. Yeah, I mean what's left is a diminished manager usurped by a new generation of younger, savvier managers. But a lot of these managers' careers are due to Jose Mourinho's trailblazing in the first instance. I mean, I do probably think that he'd actually be better in international management. I think that would suit what he's doing right now. I think if you sat there and you gave him a good international team, whereby you're only ever dealing with your best 23 players, whether when you use a young player, when you call them up, it's because... They've earned it. They've done well enough. So they're not going to be green round the ears like they will do at club level. You know, it's not as tactically sophisticated. You can, by sheer aura, get a team that isn't maybe the best and you can get them through to a final. You can get them on a good run of form. You know, you got Greece in 2004. You know, Croatia. There's elements where 
a Jose character could do well at international management. You know, the point is, it's, it's a little bit similar to sort of Tom Brady. There was such a strong desire for football fans and sports fans in general to push transcendent talents to the brink. You know, could Jose defeat Pep in the league, in the Premier League, in La Liga? You know, what would happen? What would, he, what would he need to do to be called the greatest of all time? Is Jose Mourinho in the decline phase of his career? The point is, he still had an amazing career. You know, if you go to Man United and you finish second, and that was their highest position since Ferguson had left, if you've taken them and won a European trophy and a League Cup in the same season, that is not awful. You know, it, it's the step down from where your peak was, but his peak was very high. Very few managers would have that level of success across all those different countries. Maybe Carlo Ancelotti, but I, I would argue that I think the the jobs that Mourinho took on were probably more challenging than the jobs Carlo Ancelotti took on. And this is where you you end up in a situation where all you have left now is the brand. And the only way Jose can keep that brand up, the only way that he can keep in a job, the only way that he can keep relevant is if he wins a trophy. And that success has to be instantaneous. Because eventually, you know, in modern football, it is very organised in terms of attacking. It is not free-flow jazz. You, know, you have philosophies that have been meticulously planned out over three to five year plans. You have Klopp, Guardiola. It is not something that is, you know, back of a fag packet, you know, on the coach, on the way to the away ground. And so the problem is is that there is always going to be an element of slapdashery to Jose's offensive you know, philosophy. His idea is if you have the defence sorted out and that you then give the attackers the confidence to then effectively you know, come up with the right solutions. But that is going to be nowhere near as effective as, as Pep Ball and Klopp Ball. It's just not. But if Jose doesn't have five years to develop that talent, then it's not a surprise that you know it is, he's always going against a running clock. He, you know, and in a way you can argue that it's on his level hubristic on his side. His inability to step away from his own past greatness, and it dooms him, you know, from ever being able to repeat it or even recreate it. It's too dogmatic. It's forever seeing weaknesses, not strength. In other words, the youth team player who's only had 20 games is always going to be the one that screws up. If he screws up, you drop him. Because you don't have three years that if you give him you know, the arm round the shoulder instead of the cold shoulder, might end up being actually really great. Because you don't have three years to wait. You have, you're Jose, you've had this great tradition of always winning within your first full season. And anything after that, the world would consider failure. Regardless of the actual circumstances behind it. You know, there's an I feel there's like an inevitable postscript that the modern stratified world with trophies in in European football being largely confined to a handful of four or five star clubs. You know, your Juventuses, your Liverpools, your Man Cities, your Bayern Munichs, your Real Madrids, your PSGs. But the thing is, is that Jose was in the vanguard 
of that movement. If he not, if not the original leader of the celebrity brand manager, you know, touring the continent of its finest clubs and winning everywhere. You can't argue against that if you were the one, and that's how you made your name. Stratification is something that Jose and Pep are a part of. You know, they didn't fight against it. And so, I think in conclusion, you take Hunter S. Thompson and Jose Mourinho, and yeah, even with, I think when I think of Jose and the way how he takes these challenges, and I think he's probably not the same manager. I don't think he has the same aura or the same level of, I suppose, tactical cognizance. The thing is, is that all football managers are football experts, but there's a difference between being at the absolute peak. It's like when Kenny Dalglish came back to Liverpool and it just didn't work. He'd been out the game too long, the game had moved on. No matter how smart he is at it, he couldn't reach the younger players. He couldn't change his footballing philosophy quickly enough to adapt. And this is where Jose is sitting. And it's the same way as you know Muhammad Ali in the back end of his career. It's an inability to step away from the limelight and the challenges. You've you know Jose, if he never managed another game, if he quits tomorrow, would still be one of the greatest, you know, easily in the top five of the greatest football managers of all time. Just because you know there was a bit of a down slope on the way, that happens to everyone. You know, even Ferguson wasn't quite as good in his last two or three years as he was at his peak in the you know, late 90s, early 2000s. That's fine. You know, in the end, if you want the, the back, end of your, back end of your career, it's, I suppose, more than winning. You know, if he'd sat there and said, look, I may not win anything in the first two years of my career at Spurs, however, I think by the end of it, in the, you know, the last two, three years of my contract, we will be winning big things... I think people would have kept, you know, maybe they would have been disappointed because it wasn't instantaneous. But if that leads you to winning the league and the Champions League in year five, then I think Spurs fans would wait a couple of years. What they, what the fear is, is that they might Spurs might accidentally win the League Cup by beating Man City, you know, presumably by playing a ten men behind the ball and getting a last minute Kane winner, and then finishing eleventh. Well, that's great, but eleventh doesn't get you anywhere. You you gets you into the Winning a trophy gets you into the Europa League. The difference was under Pochettino, you were finishing second. You were getting the Champions League finals and you were playing a brand of football that you thought could keep Spurs up at that level. Right now, the way how Spurs are playing doesn't seem to suggest that they are anywhere close to competing with Man City, Barcelona, not Barcelona, Bayern Munich, PSG. You just don't see. You don't think this team is at the forefront of modern football. And the thing is, is that Jose and Hunter Thompson's legacies will live on forever. They, you know, Hunter Thompson's a brilliant writer, regardless of whether the last 20 years, 30 years, weren't brilliant. If you still have five or six amazing books, that is an achievement. You know, the perils of fame and the burden of being a legend in your own lifetime weighed heavily on both of them. And I suppose you can argue, you know, in the back nine of both of their careers, they were probably weighed down by the success of the front nine. But that, that still makes them brilliant. Thank you for listening.